Righto, you legends, before we rip into another episode of the Deadass Podcast, I'd firstly like to thank our major sponsor, Country Tracker Caps, for the continued support of the podcast. You will find their merchandise at thecountrycompanies.com or if you'd like to design your own cap, head to countrytruckercaps.com. Knuckles has fired up a discount code for the pallbearers. Type in Deadass at the checkout to receive your discount. That is D-E-A-D-A-S-S. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the Deadass Podcast. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here again today for another episode of the That Ass Podcast. I am your host, Brizey. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. Today I'm going to share with you some stories of my own. Um, let me just crack one of these first. Oh, sweet. I'll just have a bit of a discussion about some of the things that I experienced growing up. Obviously, from previous episodes, you've heard that... Um, Grew up in the funeral industry, so just to give these guys a little bit of an in-depth insight into how, you know, the things that we experienced as kids growing up in a funeral home, um, and also to give um, some of those people, some people have actually been asking sort of a little bit of personal information about myself, about some of the things that I've been up to, like I grew up with, got to see, all those sort of things. So I thought it might be pretty appropriate to dive in and share some of those and then you can branch on it in further episodes and whatnot but um yeah so firstly um i just want to give a thanks to everyone who has been following us and liking and subscribing our stuff we really appreciate it um, you guys are awesome uh, and sharing our stuff too because that gathers other people to come in and see our stuff um it's amazing. This is just a fantastic thing to sort of break up my work week um, and give the opportunity 
just share some of my stuff and um, for years to to um, like and share it and whatnot. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much to all those people. And for the new people here that are first listening. Um, so essentially, uh, my name is Brian. I have been in the funeral industry for 20 plus years um, on and off. We're growing up in it as well. But um, sharing some of those insights and stories and whatnot I've done over the years, give people the opportunity to share their stories and memories and to capture some of those for, you know, for people to, to look back on years' time and, and hear and whatnot. It would have been amazing to hear some people's stories from back in the early days if the technology was available. I mean, back then I guess the only way that you could get an insight into people's lives were through personal uh, journals and stuff like that. But not to – you don't get a sense of what the person's um, accent might have been like, their demeanour, their character, some of the impromptu stories that they got to share to get a bit of a sense of what things were like back then with how they spoke and whatnot and, you know, what the general conversation was like. It's amazing to think that, um, you know, we have this stuff at the – at the tip of our fingers now which will be recorded forever so you know in a hundred years time people can come back and hear the way that we talked and the way that we um you know the things that we got up to at that time what we thought were you know bad things and what were good things and you know in a hundred years time people look back and go what the hell were these guys talking about so that's a bit of an idea of it give you guys a bit of an idea of what what i'm about and and what to expect for future episodes. I am a bit of a history buff as well. I do love to hear, I love stuff of history. So we will dive into an Australian funeral history uh, at one point there, which I'm really excited about, which I've started to do a little bit of study on um, to fine tune it, which I'll bring in a future episode, one of these episodes like today, where it's a little bit just uh, myself speaking. Um, so that's something to look forward to. I have got some other guests booked in as well. Uh, which will be coming in the coming weeks. But we've got some big things in play that's happening over the next couple of weeks as well. So we'll keep you in tune, keep your eye out. We have got some merch getting dropped soon. Uh, we do have some stickers that are available soon, so we'll post them up. And if you want one, all you have to do is just DM us an address and we'll pop one in the mail for you. And then if you want to give us a share uh, where it is, we'll repost on Instagram and all the socials as well. So here's to uh, sharing some stories. All right, so pretty much um, I was born in Melbourne, uh, born uh, in Daniel Hospital actually. And uh, at the time, I believe my father was working uh, in a shoe factory. And I think leading up to mum giving birth to me, she was actually working at um, Coles as a supervisor in the shopping centre there at the local one, wherever, she, wherever they were living at the time. I think they were living at Berwick, I think it was. No, um, no, that's South Australia. No, I can't remember. Somewhere, somewhere, uh, somewhere in Melbourne. Anyway, um, long story short, on that side, on a side note, before we go too further, the chant that this is—it's amazing to think how much of a small world it can be. Because when Mum was working at the um, coal supermarket as a supervisor for the checkout people, there was this other person named Harry Holland who was the Supervisor of the butcher's department and long story short, by just pure coincidence, when my family moved up to Rocky 
to run the funeral home up here, the f- one of the persons that they met in the mortuary by pure coincidence was Harry. Harry had moved from Melbourne up to this way and got a job in the funeral home where we moved up to as well. So the chances of that where you re-meet with someone without any communication, prior communication at all, to run into each other into a little town, into a little funeral home in Rockhampton is just absolutely amazing. So I just had to share that part. But So long story, uh, sorry, that's a bit off track there. But anyway, my um, mother gave birth to me at the Antidong Hospital. The old man, I don't know what happened there with the with the shoe factory. I don't know if they were shutting the shop down or what was the case, but he ended up uh, looking in a newspaper uh, for some other employment and found that they had a hearse driver. Uh, they were advertising hearse driver. And it's amazing to think back then, you know, the only points that you could find was the was the newspaper and whatnot. But um, so anyway, he, he applied for the job and he went and had an interview and um they came down to himself an ex fact an ex shoe a manager of a shoe factory or a um, 747 pilot uh, the 747 pilot must have been taking some time off wanted a couple of months worth of work um and obviously in this case unfortunately dad missed out on that one and the old 747 pilot got the uh got the job so in the meantime but it was only temporary that job so in the meantime the old man i think he was working doing some work for a printing press or something like that um, doing some night shift or whatever might have been the case i know that he was doing multiple jobs at some point there but uh it, the phone call came through for employment at the um, funeral home and he took up on it and that's where he began his career of being in the funeral industry now i can't remember if that was me uh, if I was already born at that point but I, I was if i had been i was only a couple months old or something like i was really young um, so I, my earliest memories of that, um, uh, mum and dad had done quite well. They'd, you know, built a house and, uh, down in Melbourne and they were living in the house. This is right around the time of when those interest rates were really bad. They were, um, something like 16 to 20%. And so, you know, you could imagine like that would have been a, a major strain on the house budget and, you know, like it would have been difficult times and then working as a just as a sort of a funeral director's assistant, um, d- driving the hearses around and stuff. Yeah, the extra way that you could supplement your income was to go on what they call standby. So standby is a uh, – you're the after-hours crew. So, you you know, unfortunately death uh, doesn't have turn off after 5 o'clock like a lot of these other industries where you can just shut down for the day and then – uh, come back at nine o'clock in the morning and then all of a sudden you're ready to go again. And unfortunately, you know, and this is what comes, to, you know, this, this is why it wears you down pretty quick too because you're constantly on call. And so to supplement some of that income, you could you could opt for what they call like an after-hours call-out. So, so a lot of the time, uh, you know, these really small regional places like where we are, you know, they, um, the call-out crew would just be at home. And then they'd wait for a phone call. When the phone call came through, then you'd go and do the job. Depending on what it was, it could have been, you know, it might have been a coroner's job. It could have been just a nursing home, a hospital pickup. It could have been anything like that. So, um, but in, but down in Melbourne, um, you know, where one of the major funeral homes, I don't know, at the time that I was down there last, um, they, you know, they'd do six and a half thousand funerals a year. You know, it was nothing for them to do quite it so you know there's six and a half thousand transfers that they have to do 
So you can imagine that these guys would have been on um, at like a night shift. It would have been a shift work. Um, so, you know, the old man would work, you know, full uh, full time in the uh, the funeral home and then also do the after hours stuff as well. So you can imagine there's a lot of hours away uh, doing a lot of st- um, transfers and stuff like that. He would he would mention about having to, you know, just to take a break, he'd, he'd pull up into the chapel and put a couple of seats together and fall asleep on there just to get a little bit of a catch up on some sleep before between jobs. Um, so it was quite grueling. I remember he used to um, come home with the limo because back then too, you know, a lot of those traditional, like those big funeral homes, like, um, you know, you're dealing with a lot of prominent people down there as well. And a little and back then too, it was a very sort of traditional old school style. Um, but they'd also, you know, they'd have these uh, big limousines. Um, and, you know, so you'd have the hearse, you'd have a limousine, and the funeral director's assistants would help with driving the, the uh, limos and stuff as well. All the funeral homes, the big funeral homes had their own limousines and whatnot as well. So the old man, he used to come home with the uh, limo and uh, we used to climb through the back of it and <laughs> go and get takeaway in it, pretend that we were rich and whatever and uh, get driven around. Mum used to love it. Um, and then, you know, I'd jump in the I'd jump in the limo and hide in there in the morning before dad would go to work and then, you know, five, ten minutes down the road, I'd pop up like, hey, dad. Scared the absolute shit out of him. So he would... <laughs> he would uh, you know, have to turn around and drop me back off at home. So, you know, like that was uh, sort of like my introduction to the fuel home. We, we sort of knew, you know, like I was probably about four at that age, you know, like, but I started to get a concept. I get an, I started to get a bit of an understanding of what um, the old man was up to. Uh, and sort of get an idea of what he's doing. And, and it also extended down the family as well. You know, my brother and my sister. Um, later on, my sister, as we moved to Canberra, she was, you know, four years younger than me at this time. She was only a tiny little baby when we were living in Melbourne. Um, but he actually got the, he got the, the want to, uh, go and open up his own funeral home. And so, you know, this was quite a big, big move back in the day, you know, uh, pretty much dropping everything that they built for down in Melbourne um, and to make a move to Canberra uh, where dad's family was. So a lot of mum's family was in Melbourne and uh, dad's family was in Canberra. So, you know, this was quite a big deal back in the day. You know, they, they, they'd sold up their house. Um, they'd taken whatever money that they'd made from their house, their savings, um, along with dad's brothers, they together then formed a funeral home in Canberra and, and began the process of starting their own funeral home. Now, back in those days, um, and we're talking like late 80s, early 90s, um, the funeral industry was a completely different game, like completely different. And it was a very expensive game to get started into. It wasn't, you didn't have the luxuries of social media and Google and all these sort of, you know, free forms of advertising that you could use to kickstart a business and get started. Nah, that wasn't the case. And especially the funeral industry, it was really hard because you were preset with a lot of, a lot of funeral homes were like sort of preset with things. So for starters, one, a lot of funeral homes were religious based funeral homes as well. So you had certain funeral homes that were uh, the Catholic funeral home, or the Anglican or Uniting or Presbyterian funeral home 
Um, so they had a footprint of those communities. So it was really hard for someone of a Christian value or could have been a different religious value or whatever may have been the case or non-religious value, just wanting to start a funeral home to come in and sort of try and be the different, be the, you're the, you know, you're the black sheep of the, the, of the funeral industry um, coming in. So these, you know, it's really hard, really hard to get these, these funerals come to your business, especially when people had such a grasp on, on the, on those communities and whatnot. Um, so, and then, you know, we didn't have these easy way to set the businesses up. So you've got the media who control the, the yellow pages and the newspapers and the radio and the TV, because they were the only real forms of advertising back then. So they, you know, they were, it was so exorbitant. Like the prices were just ridiculous. So you can imagine the amount of money that they had to pour into these funeral homes to try and get their name out there and to build their reputation and to get these funerals come in. So it was a long process because you'd have to organize all the necessary things to get that to happen. And then you're trying to get a, a footprint into a stamp your own little area to try and bring some funerals in. So it's a very long and drill and, you know, uh, hard tasks to, to get going. So, you know, when the old man started this funeral home, it was a real struggle, an absolute struggle. So the family sold everything up. We packed the bags. My youngest sister, uh, my youngest uh, sibling, Summer, she was only a newborn. Um, and then my brother, he was 13 months younger than me. We jumped in the car um, and I actually, I actually remember parts of that going up to Canberra. It's amazing to think of some of the things that you can remember as a baby, like me being, um, uh, you know, roughly around four years old and whatnot. Um, so yeah, so it was quite interesting anyway. So we made the move and we've moved up to Canberra. The old man's gathered the troops, gathered his brothers and together they've They've created a, they've started a funeral home. Now that was really tough times. As I was saying before, you know, to make this footprint and to um, get yourself established, it was long days and nights of things that wasn't happening. There was, you know, I think from record, don't quote me on it, but I think maybe the first financial year, I think they did two funerals. So you can imagine like investing all investing all this money and time into this business and to have a return of two funerals for the year, you know, it's not that it's a, it's a real financial strain. So I remember the old man um, having to, uh, he did multiple jobs um, to help support the family um, and to keep, keep the doors open at the funeral home. So it was quite a, you know, strenuous task. Um, I remember there, I remember, Dad working, he was working night shifts at the, at a service station just to help pay the bills. Um, but I remember every morning that, you know, he'd, he would obviously do a, a night shift and then in the morning we, we would run in and, you know, he'd always bring us home a treat and it was like, you know, something like a kind of surprise or something. We just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Little, little alone did I know that the old man was probably sitting there fucking stewing over the fact that he didn't know he was going to pay his next bill. Um, you know, so... 
our parents, you know, we 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 had a really a good childhood growing up like that. You know, the, the family, the, the, my parents were very supportive and um, and us kids at a young age, um, especially living in Canberra. Um, you know, we, we didn't go without. You know, even though I could, you know, you look back on these things now and you know that um, that your parents were doing it tough, um, and especially mum too. She was doing it tough. Uh, and also being, you know, super supportive of her husband and the goals that he wanted to do. Um, so you can, you know, there was a lot of, um, I'm sure there's a lot of stress and worry there and stuff, but they hid all that from us at that point in time. Um, yeah, so, but, you know, look, as all things do happen, they did start to start to eventuate. And, um, and from there, you know, I guess the time it, it just came down a time thing and a, and a consistency to keep advertising. You know, it's amazing to think that we have such easy tools these days to be able to to get ourselves started in a business and to do the things that we need to do to get running. Like I can do it. At, I can do it with just my phone. I can literally start a business right now, um, and within two hours, it's operational. Like it's just absolutely phenomenal, um, you know. Considering the things that my parents had to do to get get a business going, it's uh, crazy. But uh, that was really my first experience of sort of really getting into the funeral home at this point in time. So like you know the old, you know they had the funeral home established in Canberra, and I was sort of at that age now where I was sort of starting to understand things, and I was more exposed to the funeral home because back in Melbourne, you know the um, there wasn't an option really for. Uh, for me to be at the funeral home but this in this instance I was being uh, that the fam that uh, my parents owned it uh, with the with the other family members um, so you know I was there quite a lot and that was sort of like my first um, that was sort of my first introduction to the actual you know stumbling in and coming across a deceased or whatever you know like my parents were always really you know they tried to shelter us they wouldn't let us um they didn't want us to see what what they're doing and stuff like that for the you know didn't want us to see them doing body preparations or anything like that. But you know, being in, um, intuitive and you know being interested in what was going on and be, you know being what what kids are normally are, you know, I'd sneak around and have a look and see what you know, see what the old man was doing or see what mum was doing. Um, you know, you walk in on you know you hide in and see the old man doing a body preparation or something like that. So you you know you got to see what was going on. It was funny, you know. Um, uh, my brother, he, you know, back in the day when they had those, they had those cups and they had those plates that you do at school and you draw, you draw some things on these plates um, and then on a piece of paper and they mould it to a plate or they mould it to a cup. It was like something that they did back in the day. And I'll never forget my brother, uh, my brother did one um, and it must have been for like either what your dad's do for a job or it was something in those industry lines and anyway... You know, so he's drawn, you know, he's drawn like a hearse with a body in it and then he's done like a, like a coffin and whatnot. And it, my parents actually got called into the school because they were concerned about the way my brother's behaviour. They were concerned that, you know, that maybe he had <laughs> deadly thoughts or something like that as a kid. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, it wasn't until they had to tell the teacher, hey, look, you know, um, his father's a funeral director that they sort of looked, took, took a step back and sort of relaxed a bit. But yeah, so you know that was that was mainly sort of our introduction to the funeral home and stuff. We didn't, you know, we didn't really find it. You know, you grow up in these things, you don't. It doesn't seem out of the ordinary. It just seems normal. Um, 
you know, like uh, it was every day, part of everyday life for us. So, you know, that was much the same even when we moved up here to Rocky. You know, as we started growing up, you know, kids would probably think that was a little bit weird, you know. Um, you know, you lived at a funeral home. So, you know, the one the one in Canberra, we we didn't we didn't actually live at the funeral home. But this but the one in Rocky we did. So when we moved to Rocky, we moved to Rocky, I think it was about nine or ten or something. And uh, the funeral home here in Rocky the, there was a you know a residence house at the front and then there was the mortuary at the back. So you're living at where the actual preparations and stuff for the deceased um, take place. So, you know, every day you'd wake up, you'd have your breakfast, get ready for school, you go downstairs, you go through the mortuary to the car at the back and away you go to school. So every day, you know, in, out, in, out, going past the trimming, uh, the the mortuary area where you do the preparation, it was all enclosed, uh, but you go through like the trimming area. Sometimes the door might have been swung open a little bit. So you'd be walking past through the mortuary, past the mortuary, and you could see in, you know, as you're going into the car to go to school. So, you know, like it was a part of everyday life. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, so it was just part of it, you know, um, and it wasn't anything different on our behalf, but. You know, people started, as you got older, people started finding, you know, because it was different and it was out of the ordinary, people would be a little bit more intuitive, a bit more interested in what you had to say. And I remember, you know, people like, wow, wow, you know, your parents do that. What's, you know, what's that like? Blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, it's, it's about as normal as what your dad does. Your dad, what does your dad do? He's an electrician. Oh, it's about as normal as that. He just, yeah, I, I don't know anything different about it. But, um, yeah, so... That was uh, pretty much like the basic run of what it was like growing up as a child, like just going through the funeral home. It just didn't make any difference to us. We're just so accustomed to it that, you know, but we used to do things like, <laughs> you know, we would hide in the coffins and stuff like that. When people come through, we'd like tap on it. When they go to open it, we'd just, Bleh! you know, scare the shit out of out of people and whatnot. Um, and I, uh, I ended up doing it later on. As an adult, to my sister-in-law, future sister-in-law at the time, poor darling, sent her white, put my brother in a coffin and got down to show her or something and he popped out of the coffin and scared the shit out of her. But, you know, these are the things, that, these are some of the pranks you got up to <laughs> as, a kid, as a kid. But, um, yeah, so, you know, it's funny. Um, growing up, I never wanted to have anything to do with the funeral industry. Um purely because it just didn't interest me. It wasn't because, you know, nowadays when people hear about that stuff, they find it very interesting. But growing up around it, it just became normal. It wasn't anything any any different or anything like that. Um, so, you know, I didn't have any interest in wanting to do the funeral stuff. It wasn't until um, I, I grew up into my teenage years and I first started working for the old man Um it was just purely by chance. I, you know, I'd left high school. I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, I was working at a magnesium plant in the in the science area there, where they test the samples uh, before the product goes out. It was like a quality control thing. And um, at the end of the at the end of the month, it was close to Christmas. The supervisor pulled us in and said, "It was myself and one other guy working." He said to us, "He goes." Um, well, she said to us, she goes, at the end of the month, um, there's going to be one position available. Um, we're not telling, we're not, it's not guaranteed either person's got the job. We're just letting you know. 
So I guess they probably use that as a an incentive that maybe one of us might leave beforehand. And it was just by pure coincidence that my old man had sent an e- a message out said that one of his employees at the time was leaving, uh, one of the guys who manages the mortuary. And he said he wanted to offer a position for me to do that before he advertised it publicly. So I, um, being that it wasn't the fact that I wanted to do it, it was the fact that I was worried that I wasn't going to have a job at the end of the month that actually got me sucked into it. And um, then I finally, you know, jumped on board and, and came in, came over and worked. And then a couple of months later, that made an easy plan and ended up ringing me and said that um, their old mate had left and asked me if I wanted to wanted the job. And I pretty much just said no. I said I'm pretty much ingrained now into doing this funeral stuff. And uh, it took me a little while. It actually took me a little while to warm up to it. I uh, I guess it was just like any other job. But um, as you start to see things and you start to witness, like you start to see the the structure of it and how it works and you start seeing the demographics and what sort of what was going on, you can start to see that there's these little niche, niches in the, these little spots in the in the funeral industry that was sort of lacking uh, in that area. And it wasn't, and then my sort of hustler's mentality sort of kicked in a bit and I was like, you know, look, there's a position here that we could, you know, we could, we could make, we could set up our own cremator and um, start doing our own cremations because at that point in time, there was just one privately owned crematorium in the CQ area and um, there was an opportunity for us to, to, to do our own. You know, so with the blessing of the old man, we went through and um, put an application in. And uh, the first application was rejected. We we put a um, put application in for sort of like on the outskirts of town. It was rejected, and then uh, and then we put one in, in town. And it got accepted. So I couldn't work that out, but anyway, it worked out. And then um, we got the uh, got the approval come through. The cremator got installed. And then the sort of the rest is history from that point. Um, the funeral home, uh, the 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 cremation side of things. It's amazing to think that um, the reason why we did it was because the cremation side of things was booming. If you go back um, back into the nineties, um, the nineties was where it actually turned over, where the where the popularization of, of cremations overtook burials. So, um, you know, it became, they were looking for something that was more simple, more um, people's, people's uh, were going away from that sort of traditional um, funeral, you know, and then they were more relaxed, a bit more of a celebration of life, wanted to go the the more easier option of cremation because one, it was more cost effective. Two, it was a little bit easier. Three, they weren't sort of tied down to the one spot if they wanted to. They had the they had the flexibility of doing different things. They could they could either take the ashes with them, they could place them somewhere to memorialize them, or they could just go and scatter them. They didn't have to pay for a burial plot. So, you know, these things, you know, this is why it's sort of um you know, it sort of eventuated into being up to seventy percent of funerals and cremations. It's amazing to think that now seven out of ten roughly uh, 
cremations as opposed to burial. But, um, you know, and mainly also too, um, you have to think about it in religious aspects as well, you know, traditional aspects of religion, so, you know, were diehard burial. You know, they opposed cremation because, you know, it wasn't what they what they believed in. But, you know, it's funny how money can talk and certain things can change um, because, you know, once again, the religious background, you know, the, the it changed the culture of how the, the whole funeral industry worked. So, you know, when the Catholics became accepting of cremation, you see a massive change in burial to cremation. And then just by at the same time, it was the Catholic Church that ended up purchasing, you know, like the largest crematorium in Australia and all these other bits and pieces at the time. So, you know, it's funny how, you know, religion still plays uh, at that point in time, still played a massive factor in what the family were choosing and what not to, and what were they were choosing to do as far as disposition. Um, so, yeah, so on that note, you know, like seven out of 10 um, funerals were cremations. And you've got one crematorium that's catering to a whole region of central Queensland. It just sort of made pure sense to me that, um, that's, that there had to be a second one put in there because if there was a breakdown as well, what, what would you do? So, yeah, the, you could see why there was such an appetizer from – I mean, it didn't take a rocket science to work out that I was like, man, this, this has got to be done. Like, this is, has to be done. So, you know, long story short, it all went through. We ended up doing it. The problem was the same on – the, on the, it's a double-edged sword in this industry because people at the same token are, are, are wanting to keep the same things going. So then they're, they're, they're very – the funeral industry is a funny one where they're very backwards. Like it's, it's a backwards industry in the fact that they don't, they're not willing to change things. Like there's, you know, funeral, there's funeral homes here uh, in, in Australia that still run a system that's probably in place 20, 30 years ago. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal to think that, that that sort of stuff is still in play, but anyway, it is. So when I got this cremator up and running, it was really hard to get these people to come over to me. The same sort of experiences that my father would have been experiencing when he first opened up his funeral home down in Canberra. So, you know, there's these people not willing to make the changes. Now, when the rise of cremations came through, also came the rise of these cheaper alternatives, these fixed-price funerals, fixed price cremations, fixed price, no service cremations. So people were also leaning away from funeral services. They were going just cremation services and then just 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 a cremation and then having maybe a memorial or something like that. Now this, you know, we discussed uh, on a previous episode of The Morning Show where Summer and I talked about funerals being for the people who have left and that's true to the fact, and I agree with that on that point. But there is certain points, there's certain things that take place where that's it, you, you just can't physically do it because, one, there is no family around. Two, the person might have outlived the rest of the family. Or number three, they just don't have the final financial means to be able to help 
that or, or to give that as an option because the difference between a no service cremation and a service can be several thousands of dollars depending on the options that are available to you know the people and depending on what the, the funeral home is offering so you know there was this rise of that and what was happening was you would have these big funeral companies, big IT companies and all these sort of things sort of coming through and offering these cheap cremations and, and offering them through contracts with local crematoriums. So the funeral director would then miss out on these direct cremations or these cheap cremation services. So I knew that that was going to be something that was going to be inevitable in our area. And then also the fact that I, you know, I'd spent all this time going around and seeing these other funeral homes and just not getting the business. The business was not there. You know, they would say to me, yeah, 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 look, we'll, we'll definitely look at doing something for you. Um, you know, we'll come in and see you. But it, it ended up being not the case at all. Um, they just weren't bringing it. And the same thing, it was putting a financial strain on what we've just purchased um you know we'd purchased this this machine and and you know we've got these bills coming through that need to be paid and we're just not getting anything and it just drove me nuts and it's funny you know like you you can spite can be a good motivation in itself too it's probably not the best one to be motivated by because um it's probably not the healthiest option like you could probably just be motivated in general but I'll be honest with you, like I used spite as my motivator in this one. So what happened was no one was using me, so I figured, fuck it. Um, if you're not gonna if you're not gonna take it, they'll bring it to me, I'm gonna take it. So essentially that's what happened. The idea was to set up a budget cremation service which was happening down in the metropolitan towns it was happening all through sydney it was happening all through brisbane it was happening down in melbourne it was happening down in melbourne up right uh, really early even in, back in the day when my dad first started his uh, funeral home down in canberra that there were these budget funeral homes that were running and they were running very successfully um and my oh, even my father sort of goes back and says that he wish he sort of went down this um, road of doing it that way to start with. And he thought that maybe he would have brought a bit more business in at the start, which sort of makes sense because, you know, uh, essentially the same thing happened for me. Like, so when we put this out there, we put out these prices, you know, these affordable prices uh, with the, with the strict rules of using my own um, cremator and, um, it sort of got going straight away. So, you know, instead of acting as the middleman, uh, we just, uh, we'll just take the whole service. We'll take the whole cremation away from the people that, from the other homes that um, weren't giving them to us. And it, and it worked, it worked hard. Um, and, and then we started getting into a bit of a price war with some of the other funeral homes. Some of the other funeral homes just, you know, the, the funeral home that the old man was working for here, they just, they, they didn't fall, they didn't slip into it at all. They were very, you know, they stuck to their guns and said, no, we're dealing with a different uh, market. And we made sure that we kept them separate because some of the others didn't and they were getting, getting caught in this price war. But essentially what happened was it also stopped. It was a great little thing as well because it actually stopped some of these major players from down in the metropolitan areas coming up to these regional areas and trying to snap up these crematoriums but also trying to edge their way into having these little um these little 
phone only, uh, internet only funeral homes where you'd ring these numbers or you'd email this place and they would send you the forms and that was it. that was everything that that was the only point of contact that you had. It was great at the time, um, so it sort of put a block on all that happening, um, and you know it became a pretty it became a pretty wild wild west there for a bit. Um, you know, for a couple of years with, you know, sort of, I, I really sort of dug some thorns into the, into the apple cart here. You know, I really, I really stirred it. Um, but, you know, look, there's a couple of things I was proud of. One, um, I kept the price of cremations right down uh, because of that, because that, because I became a player in the game, it, um, it drove the prices down and it kept them there at a cheaper price for so long. So people, you know, didn't, weren't affected by the rising costs so much around here because, you know, I'd made this competition. Um, but then also, you know, it became a part of the, like I was becoming, I was ahead of the game. Um, it was inevitable that was going to happen at some point, but I was lucky I just sort of jumped in at the same time. So, uh, you know, that's what we stuck with. Uh, we've reached out to all the areas of CQ and, you know, and it's been running since and it's been running quite successfully. The funny thing is when you have such a broad name with funeral, with, with, with cremations and, and whatnot, just offering just straight cremation services, uh, it can also, um, <laughs> people can just uh, assume that maybe they mean more than just humans. It could be animals as well. So, you know, we would get multiple phone calls a month from family members ringing us, asking us if we can cremate their cat or dog or whatever the case may be. And obviously we weren't licensed for that part. We weren't approved for it to be a pet crematorium and you wouldn't do them together anyway. It's completely separate. But, um, you know, we, you know, my wife and I, we'd get these calls one after another you know, uh, monthly to the point where, um, it was crazy. Like sit there having a chat to my wife and like, maybe we should, um, maybe we should start a, a pet cremation business because, um, the warrants there, like it, you know, we could, um, we could do it. So, we sort of been tossing it for years. Like we, we, I'm talking like five, six years. We'd actually been talking about doing it, and we sort of kept putting it on the on the back burner, on the back burner, and and then it was my conversation I had with my brother, right up just before he passed away. That he said to me, he goes, he had been having trouble with his work, and um, he said, you know, look, um, I'm thinking about getting out of the industry. I'm in. I want to come back up to town. He was living he was living down south at that time, and he said, "Look, maybe we, maybe we get together and we start this um, we start this pet cremation business." And uh, I was all for it. And I said to him, "Look, you know, let's uh, let's catch up and let's put this um, in on, on paper and work out exactly what we got to do." And then um, it was about a month later that he passed away. Tragically, he took his own life. Uh, so that's sort of. That sort of put a big hole in, in, in me um, personally. Um, you know, that sort of st stuff, that sort of, you know, threw me out um, pretty bad for a while there. And I sort of used that point 
as the motivator to actually go ahead and get it started. So we did. So we put it in, we, we got it together and got it up and running. And man, that thing just hit the ground running, hit the ground running hard. Um, you know, purchased a cremator from down south, Australian built one, had it sent up, took the lease on a building, you know, just a couple of blocks down from where we are. Put the, um, uh, you know, <laughs> at the hand of the phone, like I was saying to you before, you know, did the social media stuff, got the advertisement out there. Um, went around, saw a couple of vets, and then before you know it, um, you know, we thought we'd get it operational a couple of weeks prior to the service starting so that we knew we had something ready. We had, you know, the possibility that we could, the day that it was to get running, that we could get the cremations going, and it just hit the ground running and it hasn't stopped since. So, you know, like it was another one of those, you know, it was an offshoot from what we first first started with, you know, seeing this niche and that, and then this niche and that as well. And like the pet industry at the moment is just absolutely crazy and it's just absolutely um, going you know, bazonkers. So, you know, like that, I hope that sort of gives you a bit of an idea where I'm at the moment because there's other little things I do. I've got a Harley as well that I converted into a hearse where we put the, put the deceased on the, on, a, on, a, on the side of the hearse there and we run them through. You can see one of the hats that I've got here. That's one of the branding there, right to rest. Um, but all those other little bits and pieces that go ahead as well. Um, it's, uh, an interesting thing over those years of the funerals that I've done, um, and the cremations and all that sort of stuff. Some of the experiences I've gone through have been amazing. There is some stories that are to be told. Um, I'll tell those stories on another day, but this is just to give you a brief run of how the whole industry worked for me, how, how I grew up in it, how my old man did it from the start. And then it sort of gave me the motivation. Now my kids nowadays, yeah, they they want to follow in the footsteps and get involved in the family business and I won't stop them. I would really like them to go out and get a little bit of their own experience first before they come and do the stuff with me, but we'll see how it all goes. Um, but yeah, so I hope that sort of give you a little bit of an in, insight of to how everything works for me and what I sort of grew up in there. Um, as far as like next time, what I'll do is I'll go through and discuss a bit about some of the in-depth um, funerals that I've done, some of the big ones that I've done over the years, uh, family ones, personal ones, friends. You, you know, the you do see these a lot of. Um, you know, you're the guy that when shit hits the fan, uh, they give you a call to help organise you know, their loved ones' service. So you know, you always um, you always put in the middle of those sort of situations where the, you know you're remembered for the during the person's most um, crucial time in their lives. So, you know, it can be very rewarding, can be very, uh, it can wear you down pretty hard, but, um, that's a pretty, pretty much a run of it. So, Hey, look, I, you know, I appreciate, um, everyone's messages that have been coming through, um, in regards to it. I thought that it would be appropriate from some of the messages that we've received. It's been, you know, asking me, um, about some of my, uh, background just so that people have got a bit of an idea so you know there was that me going down and studying embalming as well there was you know um, did the funeral industry standard stuff that i've been studying as well you know the, all the bits and pieces but that's all you know we can dive into those and on another days but today i thought I'd just give you a brief rundown of how it sort of eventuated from the start all the way through the end um, and then we'll go from there now on another note too i just want to reach out to everyone if you do have a story or if you have um, 
you know, a question that you like to ask. There is the opportunity where you can just go to your phone, um, you can press the record button and you can ask a message. You know, you record a message and then attach it and send it to us. Uh, send it to our email at uh, deadasspodcast01 at gmail.com. Um, we would love to hear some more stories and questions and stuff together so we can put together another morning show. Uh, I will dive into a history one with you one day. I'll get together that um, that information for you. Um, we will do another morning show. This seems to be the very popular ones. Um, I'll go through, share some more um, death-related stories. Um, I'll also do Weird Death of the Week, which is sponsored by CTC. Um, I'll also go through and answer some of those questions that come through. So even if you um, if you want to share your story too, please reach out to us. We really... Uh, we've had a fair few come through. We do go through and have a bit of a look at them, uh, see, see if we can make a story out of it for you. You know, um, we do definitely encourage you. Please get in touch with us because we want to. We want to hear it. We want the opportunity for people to be able to to share those stories and memories and capture those eulogies. So, um, I just thought I'd give myself the opportunity to do it. Um, I encourage you to do it as well. Please feel free to reach out to us and to you know thank you once again for everyone who's liked, subscribed. All the bits and pieces. Now, being here, I am by myself. I will have a shot of the Don Julio just because, fuck it, why not? So, here's to you guys. I appreciate each and every one of you. You guys are a bunch of legends. To the pallbearers, thank you for your support. Uh, to everyone else, much love. And from here, I'll have this shot. <laughs> and send you my love and wishes all good day. Cheers. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.